so many people want to be the best in the world, um, but not many people want to put in what it takes to do so. So they get into this environment, I want to be the best triathlete in the world, they get into the best training environment, they'd last six months, they'd blow up and they'd go, I can't do that, I don't want to do that. In sport, those people just disappear. At work, they hang around forever. So the biggest problem I had was, and, and as I got to be a manager, the biggest challenge for me was, the better you were, the more work you got, the worse you were, the more support you got. And I was used to a dynamic where if you were no good, you were gone you're out and, and see you later. And I really struggled with that dynamic for a while and it took me ages to realise that, and I think it's probably because I was so into individual sports my whole career that you're only as strong as your weakest member. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a highly focused and determined leader who is an Olympic triathlete, two times world triathlon champion, and ITU World Triathlon Hall of Fame member. His career has included leasing executive roles at McConaughey Properties, Colonial First State Property Management, and Head of Retail Leasing at Charter Hall. He has also filled governance roles on the Triathlon Australia Board and High Performance Committee, and is currently the CEO of Triathlon Australia. I have the absolute pleasure of introducing one of Australia's all-time best triathletes, a multiple national speed skating champion, MEMOS master's degree student, and has the rare privilege of winning a world title in his hometown, Miles Stewart. Miles, welcome to the show. Wow, thanks Craig, appreciate it. Uh, you've had a very illustrious career as an athlete. You know, When did you first get that competitive bug to be an athlete? I think it all happened when I was fairly young. I was, I was the youngest of three kids at, at that time. Um, my, my brother and sister were going down the pool and going swimming. They were three and four years older than I was. And, and for me, it was either sit on the side of the pool and watch or jump in the pool and swim. Um, like pretty much every sport I did, I jumped in the pool and I couldn't swim a lap. I was, I was pretty bad at it. My brother and sister were tearing up and down and doing their thing, but I was always kind of very persistent. And over time managed to get better and better at things. Even when we swapped to speed skating after swimming, you know, my brother and sister go skating the first day, they're off in the middle doing their thing. I'm on the wall for practically a year, like <laughs> hanging on and wondering how I'm ever going to learn how to do this. And, and you know, we all end up later on being all being speed skating national champions. So I, I didn't learn as fast as my, my brothers and, and even my younger brother today. They, they're just super good at picking things up very quickly. But I was the bloke who just didn't give up until I was able to do it very well. And uh, I think that showed through at the end with my triathlon career. Yeah. Definitely. So, you know, for you, you, were, you grew up around, obviously, with your father, Cole Stewart, who is regarded as one of the world's premier triathlon coaches. How easy was it for you to separate from being your dad and then from the coach? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I, I, my dad was quite unique, a very, very strong character, very strong personality. Um, he coached world champions in three different sports, which is extremely unusual. Impressive. From speed skating to cycling to triathlon, which are you know quite diverse and interesting. 
Um, look, we lasted till about 18 with me living at home and still training with him. And we probably had more of a friendship style relationship at home as a father, as opposed to father and son. And, you know, he had a very dictatorial style of training where you did as you were told. Um, and, and that lasted till I was 18. And, and, and my dad had very simple rules and that was my house, my rules don't like my rules, get your own house. So at 18, I went, okay, that sounds like that's probably me. So I, I moved out of home when I was 18 and uh, that certainly helped that relationship and that dynamic by able to have a bit of space because you know, 24 hours a day being told what to do was quite challenging over time and especially when it's your dad. And uh, But look, I, I trained and raced with him my entire career. So that's one of the things I'm extremely sort of proud of today that I lasted not only through a skating career and a cycling career, but I also went through my whole 20 years professional triathlon with my father and my coach, which was really cool. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So while you were at school, did you dream of a career outside of professional sport or was it just a sole focus on athlete 24-7? Yeah, look, I, I, I went to school, I believe, um, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if I was always present. Um, I, I, was, I was training, I was riding to school. I used to live like 20 kilometres away from school. I'd ride there, I'd leave my bike at a friend's house. I'd walk three kilometres to get to school. I'd, I'd swim at lunchtime. I'd walk home or run home to his place. I'd ride the 20 kilometres home. I did that every day of my life, yeah. plus training on weekends. So, And I'd run cross country at school if it was there. So I was always kind of um, waiting to get to the end of school so I could uh, get on and do a, a career in sport. Um, but I was super lucky. Like I had some amazingly influential people at school as teachers. So, you know, some people have bad experience with teachers. I had great experience with teachers. Um, my art teacher was a guy called Barry Voverden who ran the best triathlons in the world. Um, my, uh, my science teacher was a guy called Peter Hannon whose wife trained Sally Pearson and, and he coached many, many, many athletics people. And uh, my basketball teacher was Larry Sendstock who was in the Boomers Olympic basketball team. So I was lucky to be surrounded at school by extremely influential people. And, and I think that really helped. Yeah, I mean, it, having that proximity around you of people that support where you want to go or, or have already been there has rubs off on you, doesn't it? It certainly did. And I, and I was very lucky, like even my, um, I had a teacher who basically pulled me aside one day and I thought, here we go, I'm, I'm in trouble. And he said, look, I know that when you finish school, you're gonna go on to do some things that I'll never do in my life. He goes, all I want you to do is get through the work that I give you, but you do it in your own time. So I had teachers who also saw that my pursuits were, were probably gonna be elsewhere outside of academics after school, and they tried to support that, not by letting me get off with anything, but a bit more flexibility in delivery, and that really helped um, until I started dating his daughter. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> You first raced at the ITU World Triathlon Champs in Avion, France as an 18-year-old where the legendary Mark Allen won that inaugural race. Yeah. What was it like to be the young, up-and-coming racer against the best in the world where you finished fourth? Yeah, it was pretty funny. Like I, I'd come from a cycling background and, and that was one of my strengths. It was non-drafting racing at the time. Um, we were racing in Australia. There was Spot Anderson, there was Brad Bevan, there was Greg Welsh, there was Nick Croft. There were some really, really good athletes, but we didn't know how good we were against the world. So at that stage, like unlike today, there wasn't you know internet or anything like that. So we'd get these American magazines where these the big four and the big five Mike Pig came along, and we used to read about how fast these people were, and we were like, wow, these guys must be just super fast. 
we were doing our races in Australia going head to head. You know, we, well, I thought the people I was racing with, like Brad and Greg, were really fast as well. But we didn't know if we would compete with these people. And in, in the year before that, in 1988, Stephen Foster, another Australian athlete who got a bronze medal at the World Champs in, um, in Florida, he went over there and he won the biggest race in America, which was the Chicago USTS race. And I think a lot of us in Australia went, oh, hang on. If he can do it, then we could probably do it. So, the very next year, which was the you know starting and leading into the World Championships, so Brad, Nick, and and uh, Welshie and myself, we all sort of went over to America and started racing. And uh, I remember the first race that I entered into. I was an eighteen-year-old kid. I just finished high school. I hadn't really travelled very much. I land in Chicago. There's streets everywhere. There's this huge city. I was like completely overwhelmed. I met this guy and um, called Mike Plant, and you know who was a famous journalist for Triathlon and passed away recently last year. And um, Mike come home and he goes, "Oh, yeah, I've been hearing about you in Australia, and how do you think you're going to go on this race in the weekend?" And I went, "Well, you know, I'd be really lucky. I'd, I'd sort of, I'd want to get top 10. So he writes this article going, "Cocky young kid from Australia thinks he's going to get top 10. He's only 18 years old. I think I was still 17 at the time." And um, I, I go to this race, uh, I finished 10th. So, and I beat Scott Tinley, so I was super happy because Scott <laughs> yeah. Tinley was one of these guys I'd read about my whole life and I was like, oh, fantastic, I, I beat him and I got 10th. And so Mike came up to me after the race, he goes, wow, you must be so happy, you know, top 10 in your STS race. And I, and I, you know, I was probably a little bit outspoken those days. I'm not sure if it's changed. <laughs> um, and I said to him, Mate, if I can get 10th today feeling as bad as I did, because I got on the bike, I literally went backwards. I got off the bike 18th, swim in the front group, got off the bike 18th, just felt terrible the whole day, ran in the 10th. I said to him, mate, if I can get a top 10 today, I'll win next weekend. So next article, boom, <laughs> kid from Australia thinks he's going to win a race. He got 10th, there's no way. And sure enough, I get into the race, uh, Jimmy Riccatello, Mike Pig, myself, rode off the front, ran away one by two and a half minutes. So then it was like, wow, this kid's arrived and he's serious. I went to world champs, went over to France, uh, probably had the worst swim of my life, come out of the water three and a half minutes behind the leaders, wetsuit leg ripped in half, um, rode really quick that day. Got on the bike um, next to Mike Pig. him and I rode super hard, pretty much caught up to everyone, got fourth and, and that was it, man. I was, on, I was off and running and... Um, you know, was I surprised at the result? I wasn't sure. I mean, I just remember sitting there, the podium got called up first, second, and third. I'm sitting on the side watching going, oh, this sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is like the worst position I could finish in because, you know, I'm just watching everybody get all the accolades and I went, oh, next time I do this, I probably need to get on the podium. And, and sure enough, the next time I did. Yeah. So, so that race was a defining moment in triathlon history, not only because it was the first IT World Triathlon Champs, but a watershed moment in equal prize money and yeah. equality in the sport. Can you take us through the events that led up to the equal prize money being provided to both male and females on the night before the race? Yeah, well, the French Federation basically said that uh, that they weren't going to pay the same money, and there was X amount of prize money for men. I think it was like fifty, sixty thousand dollars for men, hundred thousand dollars for men, and it was like twenty thousand dollars for women. Um, they got us into a room. Mark Allen was there leading it. I was there while she was there. Um, the whole male field basically was there. And um, Les McDonald, the, the president of, of the ITU at the time, or the recently formed ITU, became mm. the president, sat in the room and goes, guys, we don't believe the future of this sport is in inequality. 
Uh, we want it to be equal prize money for male and female. And we want you to decide to see, would you back us on that journey? So we all talked amongst each other and said, absolutely, we want the same. And it was then decided the night before the race, the men wouldn't start. So, you know, once again, 18 year old over in France, you know, hadn't been there before, went to do the world championships, looked like we weren't even gonna start the race. Mm -hmm. And they were saying, well, the race is gonna go ahead without you. And we went, well, great, well, there'll be no elites because we're not doing it. Mark Allen was a really big name in France after his Nice races. He was very vocal, very influential. He was a, he was a major part of this. And Mark goes, well, I'm not gonna race in France ever again. So the French Federation found 50,000 francs, I guess it was at the time, yeah. um, the night before the race. It was announced that equal prize money we were there. We all raced, it's been equal prize money ever since. So very watershed moment in the sport that maybe not a lot of people are aware of, but it took the men to stand up and say, we're not competing anymore to, to achieve that. And it's been the same ever since. Yeah. So fast forward two years later, and you win the 1991 IT World Triathlon Champs in your hometown on the Gold Coast. What were your expectations going into that race and what fueled you to find that extra edge and that finishing straight? <laughs> well, I'm the only person still in history to get kicked off the World Championship team. So in 1990, um, it was recommended that uh, you do this selection, or not a selection race, a warm-up race leading into the World Championships. Um, I didn't go and do that race. I did another race on the same weekend. Um, next thing I got an email saying, you're out, you're not racing anymore and I never showed up to Florida. So I watched Australia get one, two, three in the men okay. while I should have been on the start line and, and I got kicked off the team and I was sat there and uh, sure enough, next year it was the same team manager who put me out and uh, I had a little bit of fire in the belly from missing the 99 and watching the other guys get one, two, three, which I was happy for them, but I was dirty that I wasn't around. Um, and then I came out in 1991 and it was just one of those, it was one of those races where, where my expectation was to win. Um, and funny enough, I was staying with a guy called Shane Johnson, who was a professional athlete, and he said to me, right, you're neck and neck with one kilometre to go with, with anyone in this race for the win, what happens? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm gonna win, right? <laughs> and he's like, all right. So funny enough, Shane punches in the race, pulls out, one K to go, he's down near the Southport Bridge and he's yelling out, remember what you told me last night? <laughs> and I'm, I'm with three guys running for first place and I, I put my hands up in the air doing these ones with a kilometre to go. And, um, and then fortunately when it came to the finish, um, I, was, I was successful there and uh, you know, it, was a bit, it was a bit of history. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty impressive field too. Like, you know, you were up against, you know, Rick Wells and... Yeah. Uh, oh, Mike Pig hadn't been beaten, Simon Lessing. Mike Pig hadn't been beaten in a race for two years. Yeah. So he'd won every triathlon he'd ever done and he was the red-hot favourite. So I, I knew, like, I got out of the water, I had a really good swim, got on the bike and I was just motoring. And uh, when Mike Pig was on fire, he'd come and just blow by you like you were nailed to the floor. And in this race here, he just sort of crept up beside me and he could hardly get in front. I'm like, I've got you. <laughs> you're, like, you're not going anywhere. So it was just one of those days, mate, where everything was on and it felt fantastic. And I didn't feel like I was ever going to lose that race. It was just, yeah, one yeah. of those days. Yeah, going to the world, going to the Olympic Games is, is a very special thing. And a number of world-class triathletes have never ever been able to race it. Yeah. You know, what was your experience like in front of your home country crowd at the inaugural triathlon Olympic Games in Sydney 2000? Oh, look probably the, the highlight of my life, to be honest. It was a career for sure. Um, we didn't find out until 1994 that we were gonna be in the games in 2000. And 
it was a huge moment in the sport and I'd already been racing for, for, for a long time, like 13 years and I didn't even know if I'd be able to be around that long or I'd sort of been going oh, about 11, 12 years at that stage and I thought, wow, that's going to be, what, 16, 18 years into a career. Am I even going to be able to make it? So I had thoughts of doing Ironman and doing some longer races but when they said the Olympics was going to be in Sydney and triathlon was in it, I was like, right, that's my goal in life and I want to get to that yeah. event. Um, as you know, on history shows, there was six men and six women, top 12 ranked in the world, trying to get into a three-person team. It was ugly. Yeah. Um, it, was a, it was a very hard team to contest. And you know, there's athletes there who could have raced in any other country in the world and been successful. So it was very difficult to get in, but look, just amazing. Uh, the crowd, um, the, the people screaming, it was just an, such an awesome experience. And I remember seven kilometers into the run i was running around there and i had to block my ears because my ears were hurting it was so noisy okay. and anything else that could hurt in a triathlon it's not normal your ears <laughs> but i'm covering my ears going oh man it's so loud out yeah. here and yeah just an awesome experience i didn't probably have the best race of my life and you know there's probably some people in front of me that may or may not have should have been there but um you know i had a ball yeah. um i gave it everything i could on the day and i was absolutely dead at the end of it and i was like well that's that's all i had to do the day and that's all i had to give so I had a dream of going there with Greg and Brad as the three sort of older statesmen to go to that, and it, that didn't quite work out that way for various reasons. But yeah, amazing experience. You know, there's less than a hundred thousand Olympians in the world today. It's a very small club, and mm. super proud to be a part of that. Being an athlete is kind of like being in a bubble sometimes. So transitioning out of sport for many athletes is, is a real challenging thing to do. They go from being kind of everything prepared, planned. They know what their schedule is they can kind of control a lot of things, mm. apart from maybe how fast another athlete goes. How did you cope with the transition into finding a job outside of sport? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I, I didn't have a degree, I didn't have a, a real plan. And I literally woke up one day, I was at Maloolaba um, Triathlon, and I called my dad and I said, I wanna have a coffee with you. And we caught up and I said, I'm done. I was supposed to race that weekend. I said, I'm done. He goes, what do you mean? I'm like, I said, I don't wanna do this anymore. I literally woke up one day and just went, I don't want to do this anymore. And he goes, so you're finished? I went, yep. He goes, all right, no worries. And they announced it the next day that I'd retired and I'd never raced another race in my life since. Mm -hmm. So it all came fairly quickly. And it came because my body wasn't responding anymore to, to training, it was breaking down a lot. So I knew I wasn't being able to do the volume of stuff I needed to do to be competitive anymore. And I didn't want to go around and get flogged every day. So I basically just pulled up and went, that's it, my, I just can't do it. Um, but I didn't have any plan in place to, to transition. We didn't even have people around to talk to about that stuff at the time and it's very different today. But um, look, it wasn't easy, it was very hard. Um, I, I, I've sort of put it out there, the four Ds of people leaving sport, um, drugs, drinking, divorce or dumb shit. And it's funny how everyone seems to fall into one of those categories. Yeah. For me, I, I got ended up being divorced, um, but you know, mate of mine dean mercer started stealing sheets from myers like people just do silly things and it's super hard to explain why it happens or how it feels but if you talk to any athlete they get it and i've done a lot of work now personally with people one-on-one -on -one who reach out and go is it just me who's feeling like this is this normal to feel like this and it's been nice to be able to give back in a way where i can say to people yeah it is it's exactly what it is like and it's really difficult and it's it's amazing that when you're an athlete, you you feel like there's people can't do what you do. Like you, you, you're not special, but there's something that you've got in you that allows you to push yourself that far and, and go that hard. 
um, what you don't realise is it's really hard to live a normal life. Mm. So when you're looking at other people, you're going, well, that's not that special what they do until you actually try to do that. Being happy without the fanfare, without the, the people cheering, the adulation, the, you know, I've had athletes come to me and say, I miss people asking me for photographs. I hated it when they were asking at the time, but now I actually miss that. And it's it's really, really hard to put in perspective. It's a very selfish space in sport. And, you know, I think life after sport is, is not selfish at all. So I think it's a massive change. Um, it's one I've definitely struggled through for some time, but I feel like I've come out the other side of that. And I now feel like I'm able to go and help other people transition out of sport. And I, I enjoy that. And I had a breakfast with a professional athlete this morning, and that was one of the topics how do I change from being this to doing that? And it's a really interesting topic. But what I found now, there's people are not afraid to ask that question. In the past, nobody would have asked that question. So, so moving into your role as a leasing executive, what were the biggest challenges you faced in going from being an athlete who only had to focus on yourself, so we kind of started on this, yeah. to working in a team and then ultimately actually leading a team? Oh, numerous and many. Um, I, I struggled with quite a few things. Um, the first thing I struggled with was, was showing up to an office and, and, and having to do that and not being able to do what I want when I wanted to. The second part was I had this silly expectation that everyone would want to be the best they could be. And I'd come in there and I'd show people how to do that and I'd push them and challenge them and stuff. And what I realized really quickly that I was the odd one out. Um, people were happy to show up, do their job, go home and they were fine. Um, I had comments like, wow, until you got here, I was comfortable and, and happy. Now I'm busy and I don't like it. Um, I also had some a friend say, don't put your expectations of yourself onto me. I don't want to be measured like that. And that was really good because I needed to hear it and I needed to adapt. But I think one of the things I struggle with as well, in sport, you're always surrounded by people who are probably trying to be the best. Whether they can or they can't, they find out very, very quickly. Mm-hmm and they get cut off very quickly. So if you come and join a professional training group and you can't cut the mustard, you're gone. And you'll throw your hands up and give up. And so many people want to be the best in the world, um, but not many people want to put in what it takes to do so. So they get into this environment, I want to be the best triathlete in the world. They get into the best training environment, they last six months, they'd blow up and they go, I can't do that, I don't want to do that. In sport, those people just disappear. Mm. At work, they hang around forever. So the biggest problem I had was, and and as I got to be a manager, the biggest challenge for me was the better you were, the more work you got, the worse you were, the more support you got. Mm -hmm. And I was used to a dynamic where if you were no good, you were gone. You're out and and see you later. And I really struggled with that dynamic for a while. And it took me ages to realize that, and I think it's probably because I was so into individual sports my whole career that you're only as strong as your weakest member. And it just took me a while to realize that I had to put twice as much energy into the weakest person than the best person, which was counterintuitive to everything I'd probably done my whole life leading up to that point. But, mate, there was a lot of lessons I had to learn. Um, I also had to learn the impact of my behavior on other people. Um, I had to learn um, working with people better and understanding different personality types and the fact that I wanted to give it give some information to someone in a certain way doesn't mean they were receiving it in the way that I wanted to and being a lot better at adjusting my pitch to that. And yeah, mate, the lessons were endless. They were just endless. And I think I've never ever stopped learning in that space and I don't think I ever will. So we talked about some lessons there from going into that work. What about some of the skills that you learned as a professional triathlete? Mm. What, what are those skills that helped you 
uh, as a leader? I'll tell you what really helped me. I had a sports psychologist when I was racing triathlon who was a very, very great guy, and he's still a friend of mine today. And I was in that space where I was like, you know, will I be good at anything? Will I, will I like it? Will I make any money? And all those questions I had, there's a million opportunities, what will I do? And, and this guy basically pulled me aside one day and he said, um, triathlon was a vehicle for you to display your energy and your passion and how good you can be at something. And whatever you apply that to, you'll be able to do the same thing into the future. So one of the things that I did, which I think was very different when I started in, in the property, was I went to the very, very, very bottom. And what my friend told me at that time was, you will start really low, but you'll go past people very quickly because of all your skill sets. But without that knowledge, you'll fail. Mm. So I know a lot of sports people leave the top of their sport and they want to go across and be the top of the job. Um, I would have told you as a sports person leaving the sport that I could have been the CEO of Triathlon Australia. I spent 12 years in a fund management business realizing I didn't have a clue. So it's funny where your head's at when you're in sport and then it's funny what you learn afterwards. And I went to the very, very bottom, mate. I was leasing for PRD strip shops in Surface Paradise on 25 grand a year plus commission when I first started a job. Um, within three and a half years, I was national leasing manager at Macquarie Bank. So I think the dedication, the commitment, the drive, the passion, the, that thirst to do well, that, that never went away. But as my knowledge built and my skill set built, I, I could put that whole package together. And when I talk to people leaving sport now, it's like the hardest part is to detune from being an athlete, realizing that a lot of the skills that made you a great athlete may not suit you in a workplace environment or may not be the best skills to have in that space which is very hard for people when all their success has come from behavior of a certain pattern. Mm -hmm. um, you might actually have to lose a lot of that, still keep it there when you need it, but you might need a whole lot of other skills to be successful. Um, that's hard to do when you've got so much success out of one style. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was probably the biggest thing I had to do was change the style and realize that adding some of those softer skills was adding more strings to my bow and making my skill set a lot more well-rounded than the, than the ones that I have that are super competitive. You know, I actually call that the ugly side of me is that competitive side, the side that's single-minded focused, completely determined, um, doesn't stop until it gets done. I, I, I don't like that side anymore. I, I, don't, um, I don't engage with that side very often anymore. Mm. Um, to me, that's a bit of a destructive behavior. So I I'm sort of feel like those other skills have helped me a lot more. So after a few years out of the sport, you decide to go back in and help triathlon Australia from a governance point of view you know what was the decision for you to step on or put yourself nominate yourself for the board and then spend you know a number of years in that board position yeah I got asked I got asked by a guy called Peter Hedge whether I would go onto the triathlon Australia board I was national leasing manager at Macquarie Bank um, my career was going really good over in that space I was very very content with road being to and it was very important for me to show my kids that I wasn't a one-trick pony and I was retired at 34 and I couldn't do anything else. So it was really important for me to show that life wasn't over at 34. I could then go and actually do something different to that and still become some sort of medium of success. So I was on the, I actually went to World Champs in 2009. I hadn't been around a triathlon in five years and the then president and the then CEO, I, I knew them and I caught up with them and I just started to ask the question, I'm in a space now where I feel like I'd like to give back to the sport um, I've been away, I've, I've had some time off. And the president at the time looked at me and goes, well, what skill would you possibly bring to the table? 
And I went, okay, interesting. Um, wasn't expecting that, but um, I walked away and went, well, no problem, get lost. Um, about three or four years later, um, I was in Malula Bar and Peter Hedge walked past. He goes, oh, I'm the president of Triathlon Australia. Um, we're making a lot of decisions around high performance at a board level, but we don't feel like we've got the skill set on the board to make those informed decisions. Would you come and join us as an independent director? Uh, I said, no. Um, so after my last experience in 2009, I was like, no way. Do I want to do that? Um, Peter persisted, and, um, and, and it was about eight, nine months later that I got asked by the whole board and, and accepted to be on the board. Um, I then became an elected member. Um, I did that for a fair while. But life was getting awfully hectic. Three kids, um, the, the job at leasing is extremely challenging and full on, um, non-stop. When you're dealing with that much income, you don't have to miss by much for a whole lot of shareholders to be upset. So the intensity was very, very high. And then I was donating any spare time I had to a board and something had to give. Um, I changed jobs then. It was, sorry, Charter Hall had bought Macquarie. I was, I was still in that role. I'd been in that role for a long time. But it was all getting too much. I also had... My father had a heart attack, so he was having some difficulty, and I'd had some friends who'd had some drama, and I had a few people around me who had committed suicide. And I started to really take stock of my life and look around me, and I, I looked around me in that property section that I was in, and you know, yes, there was a lot of money. Yes, people were getting paid. Yes, there was there was nothing like wrong with that, but most people were divorced, overweight, um, you know, had a heart attack whatever it was, and I sort of started looking around, and I thought, wow, is that really me in 10 years? Is that, you know, yeah, I've got all this money coming in the door, but is that really what I wanna be in 10 years? And I could just see my life rolling out, looking exactly like these people around me. No offense to them, that was their decision, but I just went, wow, is this all there is? Is this, you know, I'd come from sort of sport, I'd come from, you know, leading, I'd come from all those spaces, and now I was sort of in this environment where, you know, to be fair in most organisations, if there's someone coming through underneath who looks like they might be a threat, they, they try to hold those people down, not grow them. And, mm. and I did feel like that sometimes at work that, you know, there was a, there was a that situation happening from time to time. But um, Anne left, like, very quickly, you know, and Anne did an amazing job, went through an extremely difficult period with Triathlon Australia, um, set the sport back up for some really good success into the future, and then, and then she left. And, um, and she left nine months out from the Olympic Games, which is a really probably unusual time for a CEO to, to leave. Um, and I was sat there and I considered it. Um, I put my hat in the ring. I was off the board. I decided to go for it. Um, and, but even up until you know, it got down to the last interviews, I still wasn't sure if I was prepared to walk away from what I'd been building for the last 10 or 12 years. You know, financially there was a it was a very big impact, and and professionally it was a I wasn't sure what sort of step it was, and I didn't think I'd ever have a sport in, sorry, a career in sports management. So, um, look, it was a really big decision. I was really lucky that I had some really good people to help me make that decision. Um, Rob Scott from um, who's the boss of West Farmers, who was an Olympic rower, who um, is the is a president of a, of one of those sports. He he reached out and spoke to him and, and he goes absolutely like brilliant role go for it give it a go and even my boss was complimentary saying looks fantastic it seems to be a perfect fit and um and i took the role on and and you know there was things i had to learn and there's things i had to do and there was things i had to grow on and, and I've, I've pretty much loved every minute i've been here for what just over four years 
Um, and yeah, so far I've been, you know, there's obviously challenges, but I love what I do. Mm. Um, I love being re-engaged in the sport. I love the relationship side and building those and strengthening those relationships. I think one of the things I think I find in sport is that it, there's such a high turnover of people that it's hard to get to know who's who. And by the time people find out who they are, they're normally gone. Mm. So that relationship piece is extremely easy. And I, I, I found it easy because I've had all these relationships with race directors, with Sport Australia, with these people in the past. I found it easy to step in and get running. Whereas I think that's actually quite a big challenge for sport is to get people who can actually understand that landscape really quickly and, and get their head around how it all works. Yeah, so, so four years into the role, you know, for you, what, what do you feel is kind of the greatest achievement um, in leading the sport of triathlon so far? I think, I think for me, no matter what happened with the sport, whether it been financial success or membership participation success or major events in the country, I think I was always going to be measured partly because of my history on whether we got any medals or not. And one of the things that was missing over a big period of time for a while had been some medals. Um, so I was really happy that we ended up getting some medals at the Commonwealth Games because I thought that was a nice step in the right direction. Um, I believe bringing major events to Australia is, is, is a big thing as well. Like when we got the 2021 World Championships, I, was, I thought that was a really cool thing to bring to the country because we know that our age group people love those style of events. So I think that's another one. But for me, retaining staff and having happy staff is the absolute key to this. You know, we have super passionate people who work themselves into the ground. Um, to have that staff retention thing is is the, my key driver, and for me that's the absolute you know our assets are our people, and we've been able to look after our people, and we've hardly lost anyone across the sport in the last four years as far as in, in that direct sphere of influence, and I'm really really proud of that. So the sport of triathlon is currently reviewing its operating model in Australia, and, and has been for a number of years now. Mm. What do you think there is a need for change, and what might the structure look like in the future potentially? I think when sport was first set up, it wasn't set up to be a business. It was set up to be a not-for-profit, um, volunteer-based organisation, which has quickly now become a business. And sport now into the future is, most sports now are calling themselves entertainment as opposed to sport. There's a lot of competition coming in from all sorts of different areas, and, and sport needs to adapt and grow. I think the Olympics say at the best of the moment, I was over there um, in in. in April and on the wall of the Olympic is is in the Olympics is um, change will be changed, and I think we're facing that at the moment in sport. The, the fact that we've done it like this for a hundred years or thirty years, wherever it might be, doesn't mean it's going to lead us into the future. There's new sports coming in that aren't structured like we are, who are nimble, who are quick, who don't have that um, lag in decision making. But sport was built on state-based passion. Uh, national organisations were developed to have access to represent at a world level. So it's really difficult because the people who put you in there are now going, well, we put you in there and now you want to turn that around and start taking it over. So it's not an easy thing to get to, even if it does make sense. Um, nine separate legal entities with a handful of staff is very, very difficult to administer. Um, the expectation on companies now in sport is the same as any corporate environment. People don't physically have time to do the aspects of the role to deliver in a meaningful way. So sport has to get smarter. They need to find a way to do it better, not harder. And we're never gonna have a lot of resources. So we need to be as efficient, as nimble as possible. And whatever model does that best is something I'm gonna support. Yeah. So there's a lot of, we'll shift paths here a little bit now. So there is a lot of work being done in supporting the wellness of athletes over a number of years now. 
However, there has been very little done in the wellness programs or support for coaches and high performance staff. What motivated you to do the MEMOS master's degree and focus in on coach and high performance well-being? Yeah, because it's a topic I've grew up with my whole life. Like I've sat with my father watching the trials and tribulations of coaching forever. And, you know, I watch these people, they're normally single, they live in this extremely hard life, they hardly have a day off. And when they do, they can't switch off. Um, the added pressure of having to deal with athlete wellness has increased the level of dependency on a coach to deliver in even more ways than before. And I guess for me, I looked around and I thought, well, who's looking after them? So uh, I managed to be successful in being selected to do a master's degree this year, which has been, which has been amazing. Um, my topic is around designing a wellness structure to support our high-performance coaches. We have a unique problem as opposed to a lot of sports. There's only really a few sports in the same boat as us of being a completely Northern Hemisphere dominated sport where there's long periods of time required overseas to be successful. Um, our coaches away five, six months a year. They never get a day off during that period. It's very onerous on them. And I just want to put some things in place to, to look after them, to have them at the Olympic Games at their peak condition, not at their worst, and to ensure that we're looking after these people, it's, it's so hard to develop Olympic level coaches. There's a handful in the world who are probably recognized as being great in that space. If it's really difficult to build them, we can't afford to lose them. So for me, looking after those people um, is one thing. Providing a workplace environment that people are actually happy to be a part of is another. And if we're going to make it attractive for people to want to be a coach and live that lifestyle, we need to make that lifestyle supportable and something that they can do over a long period of time. And that's not always the case. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why there's a lot more male coaches than women coaches without being, without being sexist. But we find we struggle to find women coaches. But I think that lifestyle part of it is extremely challenging. And it's something we need to address and, and, and be meaningful and do it a lot better. And I just don't think it's an area that's been a focus in the past. I think it's certainly getting ahead of steam in right now, and there's a lot of talk and noise in that space. It's gone from athletes, it's now going to coaches, it's not gone to high-performance staff yet, which I think is the next evolution, and then you know it's probably going to CEOs, to be fair. Yeah. So I think that's the pathway, but look, I want to make sure that we've got something meaningful in place to look after our coaches and retain them in a system and encourage them to want to, to be in that workplace environment. Yeah. And are the, you know, your early phases in the research so far, are there any sort of findings that, or themes that are coming through yet or is it difficult with the, the limited amount of research in this area? There's not a lot of research but there are a couple of things that sort of struck me so far. One of them has been around um, contracts and security um, and I know for us that a lot of our contracts are one-year contracts which makes it extremely challenging and frustrating for people on a yearly basis to know whether they're getting that money or not into the future. That's predominantly been based in our um, and our funding cycles, which is something I need to address and, and consider into the future. Um, and, then, and then issues with organisation around communication and, um, and clear communication is another one of the big issues. So um, lifestyle is definitely one of them and, and dealing with athletes is, is another one. But, but um, I, I think certainly the first two are ones that are in our hands and easily to work on. Um, the third one, fourth one, you know, they're, they're probably things we just can help with providing better coping skills or better ways to, to deal with that along the way. So you know, for you now, keeping perspective is important as a human being. How do you separate that all-encompassing CEO role with what is happening around you and with your family and the rest of the world? Yeah, I, good question. 
sometimes maybe not very well. Um, I, I tend to work extremely hard and being an ex-athlete probably I have that mentality where I can't just let things slide or I have to sort of get to the finish and, and deal with them. So I think I've had to learn to get a lot better at relaxing and recovering myself. Um, I've never been great at making myself a priority. I normally put a lot of things in front of that. So pulling that back a little bit has been something I've had to really consider and um, carving out some time to do something that I need to do is, is good for me as well. So I enjoy mountain biking, I enjoy swimming. I've just got to make sure I plan in the time to be able to do those things. Not anything like what I used to or as much as I used to, but two or three times a week, I just need to be able to get out there and, and switch off and not have the phone ringing or having emails coming through or even talking to anybody is great. So one of the reasons why I love swimming is because I can't talk. You know, I don't have to hear anything. I can just swim, you know, and I'm in my own little world and it's just really quiet for a while and I, I really enjoy that. And it just allows me to... To, to switch off and unwind but you know I don't like to use sport as a way to, to medicate or to or to calm down I, I like I like to use sport as a way because I enjoy it and it makes me happy I don't want to ever use it as if I don't train I'm unhappy because to me that's just a difficult toxic relationship so for me it's not about I have to it's the fact that I like to your dad had a huge influence on your sporting career is there someone else that's had a major influence on your career and, and why um, I do have a couple of people who um, I, I reach out to and they're, and they're successful business people. Um, I think one of the things I did okay I, when I was an athlete was staying in touch with some of the people I met. I, I knew that um, it would come to an end one day and I knew at some stage I would need them more than they needed me while I was an athlete. So I, I managed to make sure that I collected business cards off people and I, and I stayed in touch with those people throughout my career and, and gave them some updates. And some of those people who, I, um, who were part of that are, are friends today and have helped me and advised me through, through sport and through situations. Um, my dad's still a big part of things that I do and I still talk to him a lot about um, different aspects of what I do. But yeah, I've got some mentors out there from, from both property and also through sport who, who I reach out to on a regular basis and make sure that I'm you know, my head's clear and I'm on the right path. We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Something for the first time? Um, I do that a lot. Uh, I, I tend to try and reach outside of my comfort zone. Um, definitely for a long time in my life, I would ask the question, why? Why would I, why would I do this? Why would I do that? And, and I've really, over the last probably five or six years, turned that around to why not? So I, I like to test myself. I, I've even started, you know, I've been a notoriously terrible food eater, for example, right? I wouldn't try anything new. I wouldn't put Nothing anything green. in my mouth. I, well, it wasn't so much that, but, and, and now I've branched out. Now I'm eating things. I, I wouldn't touch avocado. I don't know why. Like I just didn't, wouldn't go anywhere near it. Now I eat it. Like I've, I've gone out and done things and I know that sounds like a trivial one, but for me that was really difficult because I didn't want to branch out. Half the reason is because I'm allergic to some food and I'm very delicate what I eat. Yeah. But, but I've certainly have tried to broaden the horizons in many different ways and try things like, you know, like climbing and bushwalking and, you know, jumping out of plane, just something just to challenge me and to stretch me. But the biggest challenge that I've taken on has been the master's degree. Yeah. So when did I do something new? When I put my hand up to do that master's degree, that was completely out of my comfort zone. Um, I'm not an academic. Um, I, last time I was in school was 30 years ago. 
And um, that has really challenged me and really pushed me, but I've really enjoyed it. And, you know, there's been quite a few occasions where I've had to sit there and mind myself that nothing, nothing good comes easy. And I, sometimes I'm looking at this silly thing like a literature review or just a governance paper homework, and I sit there and I go, all right, how does someone need to see this? <laughs> I've got the information, but I don't have the structure. And, 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 and it really has been super challenging. So for me, like, you know, the latest one has been jumping into the Masters. It's, it's so far out of the deep end for me. I'm so much more, I'd rather go and race the World Championships and do a literature review. Like, it's so much less stressful for me to do that. I'm, I'm so much more used to that environment. This one's hard and I've got people watching over my shoulder all the time and advising me on everything I might be doing wrong or certain rares. And I, I, I've, it's definitely been a challenge and I'm loving it. What and is, hating it at the same time. <laughs> what is the one question that you would love to solve? Um, I'd love to solve a really, really simple question. It's a question that I've really um, tried to, to, to take on in my life, and, and that's how do I be happy? And, you know, for a very long time after sport, I found it difficult to find happiness. And it's really funny now that my life goal is just to be happy. So for me, the key to happiness is probably the, the question I like to answer. And I know it's different for everybody. And I think I was talking to you the other day and I was saying, if, if there's more good things or happy things going in my life than bad things, I feel like I'm a success these days. And it really is that simple for me now. I, I won't take on anything at all anymore in my life that doesn't have a degree of happiness to it. So I've had to make that change. Um, I don't want to do things for money anymore. I don't want to do things because I feel like I have to. But unless there's some reward in happiness for me, I'm not prepared to take something on, whether it be helping someone, whether it be a task, whether it be a job, whether it be school, whatever it might be, I've got to have that element. Otherwise, I don't want to touch it. And that's probably been a monumental shift for me since I've retired from sport. Um, and I think I've spent a lifetime not chasing happiness, but chasing a result. Mm -hmm. And you no know, result's good enough, no result's big enough. Where's the next one? And I feel like I've missed a big chunk of my life, never been satisfied with anything at all. So for me, that happiness component has probably led to a lot more satisfaction and a lot more celebrating small things that, you know, what do you celebrate that's small when you win a world title, right? Like you're sitting there as the, in your head, you're the best in the world at something at a particular point in time. Well, how do you celebrate something trivial? Mm -hmm. So I've had to get a lot better at that. Um, I've had to get a lot better at that for my kids because I didn't want to miss their milestones and go, oh, big, no big deal. Like, uh, so I really have tried to put a lot more emphasis on that. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I've done a lot better at that space since I've stopped. At Active CEO, we are passionate about making a difference in people's lives. So we like to leave them with a call to action. What is one piece of advice that you may have received over the years that you would like to share with our listeners? Um, I, I think for me, it's about you know, no one's better than anybody else. And and I think for a lot of my life, I tried to prove that I was in so many ways in sport. Um, these days, these days I don't have that same sort of mentality. For me, if you go to Miles Stewart's house, there's, there's no shrine to Miles Stewart. There's no medals, there's no trophies, there's no pictures, there's no nothing. I'm just me and that's who I am and that's something that I did. So being humble is certainly something that I, I'm, I'm conscious of. Um, I used to have a super strong sense of right and wrong. That's right, that's wrong, there's no grey area, that's what it is. And I think part of that's my personality, probably part of that's my upbringing. 
these days I've tried to shift the fact that I don't believe there's right and wrong. I think there's different perspectives. And I've got a lot better at that. So there's a few things there, but they're the things that for me, I really try to focus on. If someone comes up to me, it's not about right or wrong. It's about where they come from, how have they got there, and where do we need to go from here to, to get something happening? So they're things that I've really been trying to focus on, my perspective in right and wrong, um, and, and those other ones I mentioned. And uh, that, they're the sort of things that give me food for thought every day. You've shared some really great insights today and obviously a lot of valuable life lessons there. How can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you? Um, yeah, very hard, I suppose. If you're not in that sphere, it's very difficult to find out those things. But, um, you know, I, I've always been available for most people who want to reach out and, and talk about things. And, you know, one of the things I ended up doing this week was going back uh, to do a champion in chairs with the Sports Commission of Australia just to talk about... Uh, experiences in being an athlete try to have a voice and then moving into the future as a, as a board member or, or a CEO and having a voice and what that means to athletes so um, people can reach out to me on my, my numbers on the Triathlon Australia website so it's not hard to get in touch with but um, yeah as far as like seeing what I do I, I don't know maybe I need to start a podcast <laughs> <laughs> So Miles, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You know, it's been fascinating hearing the insights of who you were, you know, your context as a young child and how you were so passionate about sport and growing up in a household where it was about performance and how do you get better every single day to then taking on the world, so to speak, and kind of being out there and just going, you know what, I'm going to win this race and actually going out there in front of it. We saw the same with Chris McCormick when we talked with him. He was he was very honest. He knew when he was going to win a race mm. or knew when he wanted to achieve something. He'd put it out there and so he'd be accountable to other people. To hear your, your lessons as you transitioned out of the sport and trying to understand how to fit in to a workspace where it's not about you anymore and it's about the team and how you can work collectively together. And a lot of people probably don't realize how selfish sport can be in a good way, but also in a way that is can be quite tainting when you move into other stratospheres or other areas of, of life. And to see how you've evolved along that and to now put yourself in a, in a leadership position where you're having to deal with multiple stakeholders and learn more about yourself every day around how do I stay a bit more balanced? How do I ensure that I'm not just black and white? How do I ensure that I'm actually happy? You know, to me, that, that's a great piece of advice out of there is how can I be more happy today? How can I do things that make me happy rather than just doing it because I want to get a better result. Yeah. And that's so, so powerful. So thank you very much for your, your wonderful insights today and really appreciate it. And we look forward to seeing how your career evolves and seeing the results that come out of the, the master's degree. Thanks, Craig. On this week's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about CEO legacy. Having a purpose in life and aligning it to the work that you do is important if you wish to enjoy what you do, be productive and perform at a high level. Some people have a desire to go beyond the world they work in and leave a legacy for future generations to benefit from. CEO legacy is all about finding a greater purpose through a project or movement that creates a ripple effect across an area, industry, or even the world. What mark do you want to leave on the world? Thank you for listening to an incredible conversation with Miles Stewart, a lifetime chasing results on episode 70 of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO podcast. 
Many CEOs and leaders are always chasing results, KPIs, and a better bottom line. Quite often, it can be detrimental as they forget to look after themselves and the people around them. Being a CEO or leader requires a lot of passion, dedication, hard work, and focus on other people. We want to make sure that you don't end up burnt out, stressed, overwhelmed, and making mistakes because you haven't effectively planned your energy and recovery, managed the workload of your team, and focused your full attention on other people while neglecting your own performance. In 2020, we are adding a second Active CEO podcast episode each week, where we'll decode each section of Breaking the CEO Code. Each Thursday, there will be a five to 10 minute episode ranging from topics on sleep, owning your own influence, CEO periodization, leading high performing teams, and even creating your own CEO legacy. If you need support as a CEO leader to help you go to the next level in 2020 and being a high performing leader, then contact Craig Johns about active CEO coaching at craig at nrg, the number two, perform.com or click on the contact page of the www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.